Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Scholars and Scribes Review the Rulings, the Supreme Court's 2021 to 22 term. Please welcome John Carlo Canaparo, Senior Legal Fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Hello and welcome to the Heritage Foundation's annual Scholars and Scribes event, our Supreme Court Roundup. To those of you in the audience and those of you visiting remotely, we welcome you. Uh, what a term it has been, uh, in both inside and outside the court. Uh, I won't even attempt to give you a summary of it right now, why you're not here to hear from me, and gosh, there's too much to talk about, but we have four excellent panelists today to go over that all for you. Uh, you know, each of them, we don't have time, I don't have time to give them the introductions they deserve. Uh, I will give them short introductions, but in response, my, my promise to them is that I will keep my own questions very short so as to maximize their time and the audience's time for questions. Uh, we are joined first by Professor Joel Alessia. He's an assistant professor at the Catholic University of America, where he specializes in constitutional theory. He also serves as of counsel at Cooper and Kirk. Uh, he is the co-director of Catholic University's Project on Constitutional Originalism and the Catholic Intellectual Tradition and is a non-resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He graduated from Princeton and Harvard Law and then clerked for Judge Diarmid O'Scanlan on the 9th and Justice Samuel Alito at the Supreme Court. Also joining us is Sarah Harris, a partner at Williams and Connolly, where she specializes in the highest stakes appeals, highest stake appeals. She has argued and won three cases at the Supreme Court. Uh, she is a general practitioner specializing in just about anything that comes her way. Uh, she uh, also graduated from Princeton and then Harvard Law, clerked for Judge Sandra Lynch on the First Circuit, Judge Lawrence Silberman on the DC Circuit, and Justice uh, Clarence Thomas. Next up is Kevin Daly, the Supreme Court and legal affairs reporter for the Washington Free Beacon, where he has served for two years. Uh, after jo before joining the Free Beacon, he served as the Supreme Court reporter for the Daily Caller. He is a graduate of Canisius College and a recipient of the Robert Novak Journalism Fellowship. And last but certainly not least, Jess Braven, the Supreme Court correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. He has previously served as a reporter for the Los Angeles Times, is a contributor to numerous other publications. He has written two books, The Terror Courts, about trials at Guantanamo Bay, and Squeaky, The Life and Times of Lynette Alice Fromm. He is a Regent Emeritus of the University of California. He has delivered the John Field Sims Memorial Lecture at the University of Mexico. Uh, 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 University of New Mexico, and served on the Berkeley California Police Review Commission and taught at the UC Washington Center. He's a graduate of Harvard and UC Berkeley Law. Please, uh, panelists, join me on the podium. So it would be very much hiding the ball if we started anywhere other than the Supreme Court's 
biggest opinion of the term, which is Dobbs. So I'm going to kick it right off to Professor Alicia to uh, talk about Dobbs. Well, thank you, Giancarlo, and thanks to the Heritage Foundation for uh, inviting me to participate in this panel. I agree that this is the appropriate case to kick off our discussion, Dobbs. I think it's fair to say that uh, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization is the most important Supreme Court decision since Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, which is saying really something, especially when you take into account the combination of both the legal importance and moral importance of the case, regardless of which side of the issue you come down on. Legally, I think that the case uh, represents the beginning of potentially a new era in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence, where they will potentially be reconsidering major cases from the New Deal, Warren, and Berger courts, with justices, with the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh potentially pumping the brakes on that at, at various points. Um, and morally, of course, this implicates one of the most important and fraught uh, moral questions in our society. So getting into the details of the case. As you all know, in 1973, the Supreme Court uh, declared that there was a right to abortion in, in Roe versus Wade and held that there could be no prohibitions on abortion up to the point of viability when the fetus could live outside the womb. In 1992, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the Supreme Court reaffirmed uh, the right to abortion and uh, the viability rule. In this case, in Dobbs versus uh, Jackson Women's Health Organization, the court was dealing with a Mississippi law that banned abortion after the 15th week of pregnancy, with some exceptions. So that unquestionably bans abortion before the point of viability and therefore was directly contradicting Roe and Casey. So when the court granted review in Dobbs, it was clear that to sustain the Mississippi statute, the court would have to overrule Roe and Casey, at least in large part, uh, and indeed, the question then was, would they overrule Roe and Casey in their entirety? And both Jackson Women's Health Organization and the Solicitor General supporting Jackson Women's Health argued that there was no middle ground here. Either you reaffirm Roe and Casey in their entirety, or they have to be overruled because the viability rule is so essential to the holdings of Roe and Casey. So the Supreme Court overruled Roe and Casey in their entirety, an opinion by Justice Alito, joined by Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, with, just, with the Chief Justice writing to concur only in the judgment, as I'll say in a second. Uh, and the court began its analysis by asking, was Roe rightly decided? Is there a right to, con to abortion in the Constitution? Which is a question that the Casey court had really kind of overlooked in its analysis, but, Roe, uh, but uh, Dobbs decides to confront that question directly. And... Uh, the court first notes that, of course, the text of the Constitution says nothing about abortion. So that means that if there is going to be a right to abortion in the Constitution, it would have to be uh, an unenumerated right, a not listed right that is implicitly protected by some other provision. In Casey, the court had pointed to the due process clause of the 14th Amendment as the basis for the right to abortion uh, and said that the substantive due, due process doctrine protected a right to abortion. And the court had said in a case called Luxburg, that the way to identify unenumerated rights under substantive due process is to ask whether the right in question is deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition and essential to the concept of ordered liberty. So the Dobbs majority asks, is the right to abortion deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition, and concludes that the answer is no. After surveying uh, centuries of history, the court comes to the conclusion that up until about a few years before Roe, 
there was literally no legal authority supporting a right to an abortion. No state constitution protected it. No state or federal court had recognized it. No legal treatise had endorsed it. And to the contrary, that abortion had been widely criminalized in American law up until Roe. And crucially, three-quarters of states had prohibited abortion criminally all through all stages of pregnancy at the time of the ratification of the 14th Amendment. And based on that historical analysis, the court concludes the right to abortion is not rooted in our history and tradition. I think it's important to say that the dissent does not actually dispute that historical analysis. It quibbles with how the majority interprets some of these uh, sources and some of the relevance of some of these historical sources, but does not actually argue that there is a deeply rooted right to abortion in our law. Uh, that then leads to the question, well, maybe if the right to abortion itself isn't deeply rooted, perhaps some broader right, like the right to privacy, uh, is deeply rooted in our history and tradition, and abortion's part of that. That's the argument that Jackson Women's Health made. The Supreme Court rejects that argument by saying, well, even if the right to privacy is deeply rooted in our history and tradition, the right to abortion is fundamentally different from the right to privacy because it involves the taking of a potential human life in the words of Roe itself, and that distinguishes the right to privacy cases. So having concluded that Roe is wrongly decided, the court then turns to whether it should be overruled, employing the stare decisis uh, factors. I'm not going to go through all the factors now. I'll just point out two key points from the court's analysis. First, the court emphatically rejects the argument that it should take into account public perception of the court in determining whether to overrule a precedent which Casey had taken into account by, by uh, considering what the impact on the court's legitimacy would be in the eyes of the public in overruling Roe. Dobbs makes clear that's a completely inappropriate consideration in uh, deciding whether to overrule a case. Second, the court held that uh, it, it doesn't matter if there's been no factual or legal change since the original decision that you are overruling if that original decision is just egregiously wrong. And that the, the contrary view was the position of the dissent, which argued that because there'd been no real legal or factual change since Roe and Casey, there was no real basis for overruling them. The majority says no, uh, just like Plessy versus Ferguson should have been overruled the day after it was decided, even though there'd been no change in facts or, or law, same thing here. So the court overrules Roe and Casey in their entirety and then holds that the rational basis test applies to determine the constitutionality of abortion regulations under which any conceivable rational basis is su sufficient to sustain a regulation of abortion. Under that standard, it's very hard to conceive of any mainstream abortion regulation that would be held unconstitutional unless that uh, regulation violates some other independent constitutional provision. Uh, and that leads us into the concurrences. Justice Thomas concurs fully in the majority opinion, writes separately to say that the court should reevaluate its substantive due process jurisprudence, including the privacy cases that had been uh, dis distinguished by uh, the court earlier in its uh, opinion. Uh, that, of course, is seized upon by the dissent to say that we'll see that Dobbs' opinion really is threatening the rest of these cases, the right to privacy cases. But I think then the two concurrences by the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh show that the court is probably not going to touch those right to privacy cases in the near future, at least. Justice Kavanaugh underscored that he doesn't think Dobbs implicates those cases. And the Chief Justice wasn't even willing to overrule Roe and Casey in their entirety. He would have simply upheld the, the law uh, by doing away with the viability rule and said that's as far as we need to go. 
The dissent is a joint dissent by Justice Breyer, Justice Sotomayor, and Justice Kagan. Uh, although the style and tone of the dissent uh, makes me think that Justice Kagan probably wrote most of it. That's at least my guess. Uh, the dissent makes three main points, which I've already kind of alluded to. One is a methodological point, which is to dispute that we should only identify unenumerated rights based on uh, their history and tradition, as opposed to a kind of living constitutionalist approach to interpreting the Constitution and identifying unenumerated rights. So that's a methodological dispute between the majority and the dissent. The second is the argument that the majority is too cavalier in its treatment of stare decisis and, and precedent. And the third is that the, the Dobbs opinion threatens the broader fabric of constitutional law emerging out of the Warren and Berger courts in particular. Uh, and of course, there the dissent seizes upon, as I said, Justice Thomas's concurrence to try to bolster that argument. But the bottom line for the dissent, I think, is to the, you should take away from it is the dissent agrees that this case is not just about abortion, as big as that would be by itself, not just about Roe and Casey, as big as that would be by itself, but this actually is a case that represents a larger clash about approaches to approaching the uh, about approaches to the Constitution and constitutional adjudication with the majority taking a more originalist-oriented, historically-focused approach, and the dissent taking an approach that's much more consonant with what we saw during the Warren and Burger Court eras. Thank you. Professor, I wanted to open up on that point to the panel. We've heard a lot in the news about uh, things like Dobbs signals the end of uh, access to contraception. It will signal the end of, of gay marriage. It will signal the end of interracial marriage. Uh, some have even gone so far as to say that Dobbs heralds the re a return to segregation and even uh, a revival of Lochner. What do you make of these arguments? Sarah, you'd like to start? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I think that <laughs> the opinion itself makes clear in the concurrence, as Estrella just sort of said, there are certainly not the votes on the modern court for going that far. And I think the interesting thing about the reactions to Justice Thomas's concurrence in particular is how little, in some ways, like how little is new in his concurrence. I think his concurrence really is reflecting his long stated position in about like 20 other opinions that there is no such thing as substantive due process in the Constitution. And the other thing I think he's saying is, look, if you can point to some of these sort of rights in some other part of the Constitution, grounded in history, in other aspects of it, like, please, like, come forward. Um, but I don't see the court sort of saying, like, oh, it's open season on everything under the sun. Just, Kevin, did you want to add anything? Well, um, yeah, I mean, one thing, of course, you have to have a law that would um, outlaw contraception, or you have to have a law that would uh, I suppose, uh, or a state that would refuse to recognize same-sex marriage before you'd have a, a case. And so there's you know, sort of social and political uh, prerequisite before the court would have a chance to uh, re-examine those cases. But uh, if you, you know, taking a very narrow view of the, of the individual rights provisions as the, as the court did in Dobbs, it does you know, ask some questions like, for example, why is uh, Lawrence versus Texas right? Uh, you know, what, what would be what would be the reason that that is right if uh, Roe and Casey are wrong? And what level of regulation uh, of uh, private <laughs> intimate activity uh, is, is acceptable? I mean, once um, some years ago, I listened to the oral argument 
in, uh, in Griswold just to see what they were saying, and that was a long oral argument. And I remember the discussion that the justices were having with the uh, lawyer for the state of Connecticut about the rationale for the uh, contraceptive ban and what implications it had. And the questions were like, well, first it was like, well, what's the purpose of this ban? Like, do you want to increase the population of Connecticut? Uh, what's the, you know, what's the reason? And then they asked questions like, well, if you can outlaw contraception, can you, what, uh, you know, what level of, of regulation can you apply? Can you require men and women to live separately? Can you limit, uh, uh, marital activity to one day a year what you know they they sort of pursued this and they really found that the rationale for the contraceptive law didn't really distinguish between all these other forms of regulation that theoretically uh, the state could do and the state's answer was well uh, we would never do that <laughs> as opposed to we can't do that so uh, you know doctrinally those questions are there whether there's actually going to be a real world circumstance when you know, the court has to examine it is, is, is something, you know, altogether different. And as the majority said, the reliance interests might be different in those kinds of cases than they were in, in Roe. But as a matter of doctrine, I think those are legitimate questions, even if at this point they're academic. Kevin? I think that's comprehensive. <laughs> well, <laughs> so Dobbs, of course, the opinion was previewed in an, a first-of-its-kind leak of a draft opinion. What do you make of that? About time. <laughs> I guess we'll, we'll, I, we'll ask the journalists first and the uh, former Supreme Court clerk second. It's, it's sort of extraordinary. Uh, I never expected to, to see anything like this. One, one thing I, I found um, you know, quite strange is that it seemed to me that there was a lot of uh, immediate uh, wish casting from, from sources on the left to the effect that a, a conservative law clerk or a conservative source inside the court was responsible in, in some attempt to bring back a, a wayward conservative justice in, into the fold. Um, the story appeared in, in Politico on, on May 3rd. Uh, a week later, on, on May 11th, Politico uh, published a, a follow-up story to the effect that Justice Alito's majority opinion was the only draft that had circulated, uh, and that there had been uh, no change in, in the vote count uh, since it first circulated in February. So it seemed that we had, uh, you know, very early confirmation that a, a left-wing source uh, inside the court was was responsible, and uh, apparently that person felt the need to clarify what was happening, um, you know, because of some pretty intense denial uh, on the ground, which I find somewhat amusing. Um, you know, I, what I, I would say, I mean, the the uh, I, the question I actually have is whether the leak signals kind of a change in the way we approach the Supreme Court as an institution that's covered by the press. Uh, you know, previously, uh, you know, sure, if someone was going to hand me an unpublished opinion, uh, I'd, I'd report it, uh, regardless of the, you know, annoyance it would cause to the court. But that didn't happen, and I didn't look for it. It was assumed that that's just not going to happen, that this institution works differently. We don't look at it the way we would look at Congress or the White House or the city council where you have accountability issues and you're trying to get ahead of the news in, in a certain way. Uh, this might be just a one-off because of the of this case. And there was actually, as, as was reported, you know, a, a similar, if not as extensive leak during the actual Roe case back in 1972 or 73. Uh, but is, is, does this mean that the court uh, needs to be covered more like a political institution than as a judicial one. Does it see itself, do the members see themselves acting that way? 
I mean, we know the public does. I mean, we know that there's always been difficulty for the public to distinguish between legal and, and political institutions. But I think that we've seen in, in, in polling that the, you know, the public is, is more skeptical of the court. Uh, and as journalists who are covering it, I think that we have to have some discussions about whether we begin to reevaluate the, you know, the, the way we've, we've, we've looked at it. I'll just add one, one quick thought to what Justice said. Uh, I, I agree uh, completely. I think there's always, um, at least in, in my few years up at the court, there's, uh, I, I've seen a risk that, that perhaps over time you, you lose your edge. It's easy to kind of fall into a predictable uh, rhythm of, of coverage. Uh, I, I wonder if, uh, as Justice said, uh, this, this leak is going to uh, invigorate some of the people in the uh, Supreme Court uh, press room to be uh, maybe a little bit more dogged in their pursuit of inside information or, or in their uh, criticism of the justices. Uh, I don't know, and I'm kind of agnostic as to uh, whether or not this is a good development. Um, you know, my biased view has been that the Supreme Court, uh, you know, press uh, core is is quite a good group of, of reporters. I think kind of a standout um, group of reporters, frankly, in in Washington. So, um, you know, to the extent this development, um, you know, might make us more like uh, you know our colleagues who cover you know Congress or the White House or something like that. I'm I'm not sure that it's good uh, that it's a good one. Professor Sarah, any final thoughts? I mean, from the vantage of someone who clerked, I think I still find this like one of the most shocking developments in just recent times, just because it is such a betrayal of the way that court works and the deliberative process that court depends on. Um, and I just feel like, unlike sort of leaks that affect like the executive branch or Congress, it is also a very small body of people, you know, who are now getting targeted, not just the justices themselves, but I mean, it seems like there's only one leaker and there's obviously you can look on Twitter and see all sorts of speculation about the names of law clerks and getting bandied about. So I'm really sad about this. Like I, I really found it profoundly shocking and a very sort of devastating development for the court. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a, it's a disaster for the court that, uh, that this leak happened. And I think it uh, will have a, a real effect on the internal trust at the court which is so essential for its good operation. Um, so I, I hope that, uh, although I'm not optimistic, I hope that the leaker is found and severely punished, either legally or at the very least socially and professionally for this so that it never happens again. Well, moving on from Dobbs, we had- Just one yes, question yes. About, about this, and I'm wondering what people think. You know, the, the Chief Justice uh, commissioned an internal investigation but there wasn't any uh, comment yet about whether the results of that investigation are going to be made public. And I wonder what, what uh, people on the panel think about that. Does the court have an obligation to release uh, the, the results of that investigation, which maybe they couldn't figure out anything, but it may also be that they did. What, what, what are you, what's your thinking about it? I don't know that they have an obligation. I mean, I think that it's just as a technical matter, the court obviously has a lot of discretion as to how they handle it. And I assume part of the calculus would also be, does disclosure of the investigation ultimately make the person a martyr? I mean, I don't know. It's such uncharted territory that I think it's, I think it's difficult to say. I mean, it may well be the case that there is some sort of conclusive evidence as to who did it. And the court then has to decide <laughs> what do you do with that? And I just don't know. Yeah, I didn't think they, I'm not saying they have a legal uh, obligation, because who, who are you going to ask right. if they have a legal, right? But um, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I think more of a kind of, you know, public, uh, you know, policy or, you know, public uh, accountability type. Yeah, and you can see also, I mean, the argument being other people have had, again, their names out on Twitter as, like, suspected leakers. 
do you sort of clear that cloud from under other clerks? And I just don't know how this calculus works. It's so uncharted, but I think it is a hard call. I, I guess I, I would just quickly observe that it, it seems to me that the um, many, if not most, of the justices, um, you know, default to, to privacy as, as a matter of course. Um, obviously, this is a, a unique and unprecedented situation, but I, I think that um, you know the uh, the momentum towards non-transparency is is so strong at the court. I, I would expect it to prevail here. Well, Kevin, would you mind uh, moving on to one of the other big cases of the term, the first Second Amendment case we've had in a decade or so, uh, Bruin? Uh, take us away. Sure. Um, and it might uh, first be, be helpful to speak uh, about concealed carry permitting regimes around the country pre-Bruin, just so we have a sense uh, of the regulatory environment uh, and a, an immediate sense of, of how this decision cashes out. Uh, so about six states uh, implemented uh, what are called may-issue regimes. These uh, are discretionary systems in which a permit uh, for concealed carry will turn on the judgment uh, of law enforcement. Uh, more about New York's rules in, in particular in a minute. Uh, about 40 states uh, have what are called, uh, on the other hand, uh, shall issue regimes. These are systems in which an individual is presumptively entitled uh, to a concealed carry permit, uh, provided they meet certain specifications set out in the law. Uh, for example, they pass a background check, uh, demonstrate competence in the use of firearms, take a course uh, on the legal use of, of lethal force, uh, and things like that. Uh, of those 40 states, uh, about 25 of them have implicated uh, imp uh, implemented what, what gun rights activists call constitutional carry or permitless carry. Uh, that is to say that individuals uh, are allowed to carry a concealed weapon uh, without a permit. That's, that's not to say that there are no benefits to getting a concealed carry license in those states. There are. Um, but right now, about half the states in the country do not require a permit to carry a concealed weapon. Uh, the most populous of those states is, is Texas, which is where I live. Um, uh, the first thing to say about this decision with respect to consequences is that the court sanctioned shall issue regimes. Uh, while may issue regimes, on the other hand, uh, appear to be unconstitutional. So the law will change in, in only six or seven uh, jurisdictions, and the other 40 or so states can go on regulating concealed carry much as they have. Uh, there's a footnote uh, that's quite explicit to that effect at, at page 40 of the majority opinion, and, and Justice Kavanaugh uh, drives that point home in, in his concurrence. Uh, the petitioners in this case are Robert Nash, Brendan Koch, uh, and the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association. Uh, Nash applied for a concealed carry permit because of a spate of robberies uh, in his neighborhood. Uh, Koch, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, spends a lot of time in, in backwoods areas and then wanted a to concealed carry because uh, you know law enforcement has some difficulty uh, reaching reaching those areas. Uh, those applications were denied for for want of proper cause, which is the May issue standard uh, in New York State. The New York statutes actually don't define proper cause, but the courts uh, have interpreted it to require uh, some heightened interest in self-defense, uh, kind of apart from, from uh, the, the general population or distinguishable from the general population. Uh, an in a generalized interest in, in self-defense uh, is not going to cut it in New York State. Uh, in practice, this means that only select people, say, uh, you know, armored vanguards or celebrities can obtain concealed carry permits. Um, I understand President Trump has a concealed carry permit in, in New York State. Maybe the January 6th committee has taken that. I don't know. Um, uh, but in any event, um, uh, the district court and the Second Circuit uh, held petitioners' claims were foreclosed uh, by circuit precedent. The court granted cert uh, in April 2021. Uh, Justice Thomas delivered 
the opinion of the court uh, on June 23rd. Uh, the court was six to three. I think this is probably uh, Justice Thomas's uh, most consequential uh, majority opinion in, in his near 30 years uh, on the court. And it does some uh, important methodological work. So um, in the years since Heller was decided, the, the courts, uh, the lower courts have uh, adopted a two-step test for handling uh, Second Amendment cases. Uh, it's a combination of uh, history with, with some kind of means and scrutiny. So with the first step, uh, the courts assess how uh, relevant practice uh, fits within the scope uh, of the Second Amendment right. If it's outside the scope of the Second Amendment, it's categorically unprotected. Uh, if, on the other hand, the assessment is ambiguous, or inconclusive, uh, courts move to the second step uh, and ask uh, how closely the challenge law comes to the core uh, of the Second Amendment right and how severe is the burden. Uh, if the regulation at issue burdens a core right, strict scrutiny applies. Uh, otherwise, intermediate scrutiny applies. Uh, this is the approach that was endorsed uh, by the New York State respondents uh, and by the Solicitor General participating as an amicus. Uh, but it was not a test that the court endorsed. Uh, writing for the court, Justice Thomas said that that two-step approach uh, is, is one step too many. Uh, he wrote, and I'm quoting now, uh, the government must affirmatively prove uh, that its firearms regulation is part of the historical tradition that delimits the outer bounds of the right to keep and bear arms. Uh, and that historical approach, the, the court says, is, is consistent uh, with Heller itself and, and necessary in the first instance because in enacting the Second Amendment, the founders were incorporating uh, a pre-existing right you know, one one other observation here. Um, this is uh, this this uh, preference for history and tradition is in keeping with a move away from the tiers of scrutiny uh, that we are seeing at the court in other areas. Uh, the religion clauses uh, might be an example. Uh, I know that Professor Alicia has written about this, so maybe he'll have uh, more to say about that. Uh, certainly, don't don't mean to announce the death of the tiers of scrutiny or anything like that. But it it does seem to be that this this preference for an approach sounding in history and tradition. Uh, has has some favoritism uh, at the court. Uh, a couple of uh, particulars about the historical analysis uh, that the court set out. Um, first, Justice Thomas said uh, that evidence from the ratification era will carry more weight uh, than evidence that is kind of far afield uh, of that period. Here, the, the respondents rested on a huge historical record that, that spanned from uh, the 14th century statute of Northampton, which was an English law that forbade bringing force in a fray of the peace in markets and fairgrounds and stuff like that, to 20th century restrictions on carriage enacted in places like New York, uh, at least in, in part in, in uh, response to anti-Italian animus or as a result of, of anti-Italian animus. We, we don't know uh, where the line is exactly, but, but we do know from this opinion that if you are drawing evidence from or near to the ratification era, uh, you're on pretty sound footing. Uh, second, the court said that the historical inquiry it is articulating uh, should involve reasoning by analogy. Uh, two questions you might ask in, in that connection are how and why a given regulation uh, burdens the right to self-defense. Uh, the court also said that uh, in, in reasoning by, by analogy, we are looking for just that. We're looking for analogs. We're not looking for uh, historical twins or, or dead ringers. Uh, again, this is uh, from the opinion, uh, even if a modern day regulation is not a dead ringer for historical precursors, it may still be analogous enough uh, to pass constitutional muster. Uh, one specific uh, analog uh, the court mentions is restrictions on carry uh, in so-called sensitive places. Uh, in the ratification era, 
Uh, individuals were not permitted to carry at legislative meetings, uh, at polling precincts, at courthouses, and, and things like that. And, and the court says that uh, contemporary analogs, such as gun-free school zones, uh, are lawful. Um, you know, I'll, I'll conclude here by noting uh, it seems that that New York State is is really keen to to test. Um, you know, the, uh, the the sensitive places issue. Uh, the legislature has passed and, and Governor Hochul has signed a, a new concealed carry law, which has uh, quite a long list of, of sensitive places. Um, a few among them, this is not an exhaustive list, uh, Times Square, uh, libraries, public parks, and zoos, uh, all performance venues, museums, uh, amusement parks, and the like, uh, protests. So I, I guess you can't uh, carry at a gun rights rally, uh, and the uh, uh, any uh, public transportation, which is interesting because the the New York City subway, um, you know, got a lot of talk during uh, a lot of attention during during hypotheticals uh, at at the court's argument. Uh, also, apparently, applicants will have to list their uh, social media profiles so that the relevant agencies can uh, conduct an assessment for character and fitness. So, uh, I guess Paul Clement and, and Aaron Murphy and their new firm have their first case. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, did anyone else want to comment on that case? Professor, maybe since uh, you are to blame, so to speak, for the court not using the tears of scrutiny, they seem to have adopted your amicus brief, if you wanted to join in on that point. Uh, well, thanks. The The amicus brief that I submitted along with uh, my co-author, John Olendorf, from my firm, uh, Cooper & Kirk, argued against the tears of scrutiny uh, and said that the, this form of analysis, though dominant in our constitutional law today, actually has no basis in the text or original meaning of the Constitution, and that if the court does want to move in a more originalist direction, it really should uh, refuse to extend the tiers of scrutiny to the Second Amendment context and try to pare back the tiers of scrutiny where it has already colonized areas of law like the, the free speech clause and equal protection. I do think that uh, Bruin, in combination with uh, the, uh, uh, the Kennedy case and its approach to text and history signals a real shift by the court away from balancing tests, away from kind of judge empowering discretionary tests and toward a more text and history uh, approach, uh, which of course I am delighted to see. On the, Jess. Oh yeah, I, I thought that um, uh, you know, one of the characteristics of, of, of the Bruin case, I mean, it was interesting, uh, you know, that, that the, the majority felt that, you know, a law that was more than a century old was not sufficiently historically grounded to, to pass constitutional muster here. But more broadly, I thought what was interesting was that we sort of moved from, uh, you know, from a, uh, uh, you know, debate about what, uh, you know, what was encompassed by terms like liberty and equality to who is the better historian because the, you know, the uh, dissenting opinion argued that the history was wrong and brought up its own uh, historical examples from the founding era and before and after and much of the majority opinion was devoted to refuting the historical argument that the uh, that the dissenters were making. And so it, it does sort of, I think, raise an interesting question about how much of a, a historical review are courts now going to be doing and how do they decide whose history is right? Because history, like law, gets reevaluated from time to time. There are debates in history about the significance of certain things. And how do you decide how many colonial statutes are enough to uh, justify a particular form of regulation or not. And I don't think the court has yet uh, set out enough guidelines for lower courts and how to conduct the historical analysis that they probably are going to be doing now uh, a, 
a lot more. Now, there'll be future cases in the core lab opportunity to, to do that and to spell out parameters, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, what, what level of scrutiny of historical research, what, what tiers of scrutiny of historical research are established to, uh, to look at these kinds of constitutional questions. Yeah, I guess I would push back on that just a little bit because I think the interesting thing about Bruin is it's sort of the most originalist set of opinions maybe ever, even be above and beyond Heller, which itself was really a debate between Justice Scalia for the majority and Justice Stevens in dissent about a lot of the history. And I thought the interesting thing about Bruin is actually that it does methodologically move the ball a lot on a lot of questions that originalists grapple with, like what time period matters? Like what is the most relevant time period to looking at the history of a relevant right? And how do you assess, you know, how do you assess various colonial era statutes? And I think there is sort of helpful gui guidance in there about, you know, if you were looking at like late 19th century or 20th century sources, why those are not as important. Uh, there's a little bit of a Goldilocks feel of sort of like you don't want too early, you don't want too late. You do want sort of the right period to reflect what the original understanding might have been at the time of ratification. Um, and I think so much of it is also just parsing the nature of the state statute, the, the, the colonial era statutes, as opposed to sort of saying like it's a number count game per se. Sarah, moving on to the some of the religious liberty cases, can you talk to us about Carson versus Macon and Kennedy versus Bremerton? Yes, love to. So I feel like this term has like the three Gs, like gestation, God, and uh, guns. And so <laughs> get to cover the religious liberty portion. Uh, and there's two big cases this term, and it's really an increasing part of the court's docket. So I, I think it's actually a really interesting area to talk about, about the court writ large and where it's going. So the first one I'll talk about is Carson versus Macon which is about whether states, when they are distributing benefits to private schools, can exclude private schools if they have a religious character or um, use religious, religious instruction. This case comes out of Maine. So if you're from Maine, uh, the odds are good that you live in a town that may not have enough people to support its own public school. So Maine has long dealt with that problem by saying you can get vouchers to go to private schools. But in 1980, Maine also added, you can go to any private school you want, uh, except for it has to be, quote, non-sectarian, which Maine has interpreted to mean if you have religious instruction in the school, no, no use of the vouchers to those schools. Uh, on the theory that if Maine were letting people use those vouchers, it would either violate the Establishment Clause or at least raise concerns about state support for religion. Uh, the Supreme Court in a 6-3 decision held that Maine's law violates the free exercise clause. I think the general principle that comes out of this case loud and clear is that the price of receiving generally available public benefits uh, cannot be repudiating your religious views. That's sort of the simple rule. Uh, the court says, you know, you can't just say there's some distinction between religious status, like you're affiliated with a, a, a religious group versus religious instruction. Uh, religious schools do religious things, and so if you want as a government or a state to invoke some sort of anti-establishment interest where you're uncomfortable sort of providing this funding, uh, you can do lots of things. <laughs> you can do lots of things. You can not have a voucher program, uh, but what you, can't, what you cannot do is say you are ex expressly sort of excluding a particular set of schools based on their religious character. Um, and then Justice Breyer dissents, joined by uh, Justices Kagan and Sotomayor, and they sort of say, this is not a review of how the free exercise clause and establishment clause work together. Uh, they would sort of say, and this is sort of a recurrent theme in a lot of these recent cases, 
that there is more play in the joints, that there's sort of more of a sense that the Establishment Clause gives states and other government, you know, federal government more leeway to exclude uh, funding of religious groups, religious schools, even if the Establishment Clause does not compel that result. So they would say, you know, go back to this sort of play in the joints concept. Um, Kennedy versus Bremerton School District is another 6-3. Um, and first of all, I mean, the debate between the majority and dissent is like, what does this case even involve? Because Justice Gorsuch's majority says, this case is about one thing only. It is about whether Coach Kennedy can gauge in private prayer on his own on the football field after a game. Uh, and it is at a time when he could otherwise check his email or like schedule dinner or do other stuff. Justice Sotomayor, uh, for the three liberals in dissent, says that is not what this case is about. This case is about a coach coercing students and others to pray with him on the field. So from those like wildly disparate factual premises come like very different views of the ensuing results of how much leeway a school should have in terms of disciplining a coach for engaging in fundamentally different concepts of what happened here. Justice Gorsuch's majority says, Look, the free exercise clause and free speech clauses protect a coach when he is on the field privately engaged in prayer at a time when he could be doing other personal things. The government cannot use a non-neutral policy and say, it's fine for you to check your email, but it's not okay for you to silently pray. Um, and that is sort of what they explained from the record <laughs> that the school district in the majority's view is doing. And the district court, you know, counters by saying, look, the establishment clause, we don't want to have an establishment clause violation here. We're kind of uncomfortable with um, whether a coach praying is sort of going to give an imprimatur of the school. And the court says, no, you can't, you know, invoke the establishment clause absent some claim uh, based in history and tradition that would prohibit the relevant practice. Justice Sotomayor's dissent, again, is sort of a just sort of two ships passing the night view of like what happened in this case. And so her dissent starts from the premise that this case is really fits in with a lot of the court's previous cases where if you have a mandatory school event or a school event that is you know, largely mandatory, uh, you cannot have a public speaker who is a religious leader sort of engaged in prayer, uh, that there would be coercion of students in this context, uh, et cetera. So she sort of sees a clear establishment clause violation. What are the takeaways from these cases? I mean, two quick things I want to cover. One is that religious liberty cases are interesting because I think we've heard a lot about, you know, two earlier cases, uh, Dobbs and Bruin, in which the court, I think, has made sort of pretty significant doctrinal changes in a single case. But the religious liberty docket, I think, has been much more incrementalist. I mean, for Carson, it took three cases, uh, Trinity Lutheran, Espinoza, and now Carson, just to get to the principle that states cannot discriminate based on the religious character of a school or otherwise when distributing generally available benefits. And then when it comes to um, Kennedy, you know, Kennedy, I think, is going to be most famous for Justice Gorsuch's statement that the, the so-called lemon test has been dead and buried for a long time, just no one noticed. Um, and that, I think, exemplifies the fact that it took like a dozen cases of the court since the 1990s saying the lemon test where you're asking whether a reasonable observer might think that a school was or other governmental body was endorsing religion. Um, the court's like, that's just not the test. It hasn't been the test for a long time. Like, haven't you been paying attention? And, you know, I think people have been paying attention, actually. It just hasn't been super clear until now. Um, and two is, are these cases a big deal? I think they really are. Um, not only Carson in terms of 
the effect for school voucher programs on the ground. Um, but I think this is the combination of decades-long effort to sort of cut back on the Warren Court's understanding of the Establishment Clause, which has really, I think, affected the way a lot of governments have approached how they how they think they are allowed to interact with a religious exercise of employees or students or others. Um, I think the old concept is there's a, an incredibly strict separation between church and state such that any even indirect aid or anything that you do um, might, that might look like someone thinks that you are supporting prayer or religious exercise, sort of no can do under the Establishment Clause. That was the old view, and the court has been chipping away at that for, I think, 30 years now. Um, and these two cases, I think, really clearly signal that uh, that is sort of an overbroad understanding of the Establishment Clause. And if you are a government and you're trying to say the Establishment Clause prohibits something, you need to reframe your focus and sort of ground that in a historical understanding of what, what that clause actually prohibits. Did anyone have anything to add? I, I would just say um, in, in Kennedy on, on the point of there being, uh, you know, rival narratives uh, about this case, absolutely true and, and made it, um, you know, sort of interesting to write about. Uh, you know, Justice Gorsuch mentions, um, you know, in the majority opinion that, you know, whatever happened in, in the run-up uh, to Coach Kennedy being penalized, uh, when the district ultimately placed him on administrative leave, uh, it cited the uh, post-game prayers uh, he delivered on, on two or three uh, specific occasions as, as the reason that they were placing him on leave. And, and it did not strike me as wildly dishonest of uh, the court to peg its analysis to the, district, uh, the district's own stated reasons for, for penalizing Coach Kennedy. Um, <clears throat> I had a... One thing just about Coach Kennedy, who uh, you know he was on sort of a tour and he came to came to DC and I had a chance to to meet him. Maybe you did too. Uh, yes. And he's a very engaging guy. But one thing I found interesting was how he got the idea to do it, and it was from watching a movie called uh, Facing the Giants. That uh, he it was actually he told me the you know he had been his his wife had helped him get this job offer at the high school, and he wasn't sure if he wanted to take on this coaching job. And over the weekend, he was thinking about it. He saw this movie called Facing the Giants, and which is about, it turns out, I, I watched the, the trailer and, and read the reviews of it. Uh, it's about a, a football coach who turns around a losing team through prayer and how he gets the, uh, you know, the team to realize the most important thing is, you know, is, is teamwork and sportsmanship and praising God and not whether you win or not. And he, that inspired him to do it. And what he began doing uh, at uh, Bremerton High School was really just like that movie. Now, maybe at the end it got reduced, but one one difference uh, is that it's a uh, it's a it's a private religious school in the movie, and it's a public high school in the court case. So I thought that was one one little difference in the uh, in the scenario uh, that I thought was was interesting. The question I actually have though is that you know when we look at the incremental. Uh, changes in the religion doctrine away from the Warren court. The other the other day I was getting a document notarized and I happened to think of uh, Toscano versus Maryland, which was an early or an early 60s Warren court case. Uh, no republics are considered public officials apparently and uh, Maryland had a statute that said no religious test will be held for public office as long as you believe in God. And uh, that was challenged and the Warren court struck that down and said that's a, that is actually, you know, that is a religious test, uh, whether you believe in God at all or not. And I wonder, is that type of test, that seems to me like the kind of thing that Maryland would have just kept on the books since, you know, 1632 or something, is that the kind of case that also is called into question by the court's historical approach to establishment clause and free exercise clause questions? 
I mean, I think it just depends. I think the court has called the methodology of many of the earlier cases into question. So to that extent, yes. I think whether the outcome would change, I'm not as sure because I think it just it's a, just a different way of looking at it. The question is sort of as a sort of matter of history and tradition, was that understood to, to violate the establishment class? And so I think there may be, I mean, I wouldn't expect that to be like the main sort of mover of, of ensuing cases. But I think, the, again, the weakness of some of the earlier analysis, I think, to the current court is simply, if you look at the way a lot of those opinions sort of came down, it's, it's sort of based on assumptions about the nature of the Establishment Clause that the court has sort of said actually are really out of sync sort of both in terms of history beforehand of the cases and, and also sort of after. Just very quickly, uh, I do think that this move... Uh, Across cases, this term, Bruin uh, rejecting the tiers of scrutiny, uh, Dobbs overruling Roe on the basis of his, history, Kennedy overruling Lemon and moving to our text and history approach to uh, establishment clause. I think all of that uh, and, and some of the free exercise clause cases that didn't do not employ balancing tests or tiers of scrutiny, uh, uh, like ministerial exception cases, uh, I think all of that is trending one way, uh, away from tiers of scrutiny. And yet, in uh, his Fulton uh, uh, concurrence, Justice Alito, in arguing for the overruling of Smith and returning to what he believes is the original meaning of the free exercise clause, proposes a tiers of scrutiny approach to replace Smith. And so I think there is a question here that the court's going to have to wrestle with if and when it decides to overrule Smith, which I think will happen in the next few years. Well, why would you replace that with the tiers of scrutiny then if we've been moving away from it in other areas of law? So there, there's an important methodological question that all these cases kind of pose to the court in the free exercise context. We also saw some very big moves and some, we saw some overtly big moves and some subtly big moves in the field of administrative law. Uh, Jess, would you take the lead on that topic and uh, kick us off with West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency? Sure. I mean, the the I, I think that the, the this case uh, it uh, it involves the uh, the clean power plan that never went into effect that the Obama administration uh, attempted to implement uh, before it was withdrawn by the by the Trump administration. But talking about that one and also the uh, the OSHA case that that uh, w was another similar type of administrative law question. Uh, one, it's the uh, I think it's the, the the codification of the major questions doctrine that Justice Gorsuch has been talking about for a number of years now through a number of cases. A way it's not exactly the the uh, disused non delegation doctrine, but it's a cousin of it, and it basically says that the way the court is looking now at regulatory actions whether they involve uh, 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 climate change, as in the EPA case, or whether they involve a vaccine mandate, as in the OSHA case, uh, the court is looking for much more specific authorization and guidance from Congress before regulatory agencies can take action. Uh, so that's what's, uh, I think that is the, 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 the big picture for those uh, both of those cases, but to explain them both uh, briefly, the West Virginia versus EPA has been kicking around for uh, a long time now, since the Obama administration. The clean power plan of the uh, Obama administration was an effort to significantly reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And what it did was it essentially encouraged uh, coal producers 
to uh, many of them having reached the limit, the technical limits of being able to improve the uh, emissions of their uh, factories or of their of their power plants, to basically get out of business and to start uh, buying uh, emissions credits from cleaner fuels and essentially transition out of coal um, altogether. Uh, and uh, it also had some other elements involving the the relation of each state environmental agency, what they could do, but that was sort of the bottom line as far as the majority was concerned when this case finally got to the Supreme Court. Now, there were some standing issues and mootness issues because, as I said, it never went into effect. The Trump administration withdrew it, replaced it with, uh, I think they called it the you know, something like the you know Affordable Energy Plan or something like that, which had uh, which really limited uh, mitigation efforts to what could be done on site within the fence line of a power plant to reduce its emissions. Uh, and at the moment, there's really no plan that's on the books. So the, the government wanted this case dismissed because it said that there's no injury. West Virginia and other coal-producing states and coal producers don't have anything to lose, so this, the court shouldn't hear this case. But it did hear the case, and it was an opportunity for the court to clarify this major questions doctrine. Essentially that the uh, understanding of the Clean Air Act and the uh, mission of the EPA did not include remaking the entire energy sector of the American economy. It was much more narrow related to uh, regulating the emissions and technical uh, aspects of various types of, uh, of uh, uh, pollutant uh, emitters. Similarly, with the OSHA case, this was uh, related to a different public health issue. It was related to the, uh, the coronavirus pandemic, where uh, the Biden administration sought through the uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration to require that large employers uh, have their uh, employees uh, either uh, vaccinated or uh, otherwise, uh, uh, or not come into the, the office, pretty much. Uh, and that was challenged by NFIB, National Federation of Independent Business, also challenged uh, the Obama administration on another one of its proposals that Congress did pass, the Affordable Care Act, uh, years earlier. And here the court said that uh, OSHA, the the the, uh, the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration, part of the Department of Labor, its mission really is not uh, to address uh, public health concerns that go far beyond the workplace because people get infected all kinds of places. Uh, it's not limited to the workplace, and OSHA, its its jurisdiction is much more narrow. And therefore, just because all these people come to the workplace doesn't mean that that's the right environment to uh, require them to obtain uh, vaccinations. So those were the, the, the facts in those two cases. And in both instances, the majority said, you're going too far. The dissenters uh, were the same in both cases. Uh, in the OSHA case, actually, uh, Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan filed a joint dissent, uh, as they would later uh, in the Dobbs case. Uh, and there they said that uh, you know this uh, the risk of infection is a quintessential workplace risk. You know people come you know strangers. You have no control over your your colleagues. You come to all the work. You can get infected. Seems to be it is particularly uh, acute risk in the workplace, and therefore falls directly under uh, OSHA's authority in their view. Uh, same thing with the greenhouse gas uh, case, the, uh, the West Virginia versus EPA. Uh, the dissenters said uh, this, uh, you know, carbon um, carbon dioxide, greenhouse gases are, you know, the uh, tremendous existential threat to uh, the, the planet. Uh, they are a terrible air pollutant. EPA is supposed to deal with air pollution. Uh, Congress designed the statute, uh, author the Clean Air Act, much as it 
did with the uh, the OSHA statute to allow the agency to deal with new problems as they arise, to give it the flexibility to respond to new problems without having to get an act of Congress. Uh, and this falls within what Congress expected them to do. So uh, very different statutory readings by the majority and the dissenters in each of those cases. And maybe if you you know pull back the the the, the camera a bit, uh, I think different perspectives of what the you know what orientation the the Constitution had in the way that uh, separation of powers operate. I think you see the majority very uh, keenly attuned to the concern that the uh, federal government, the national government, will overreach, that it will go beyond uh, its um, delegated powers, its enumerated powers, to start doing things with the um, with American society and the American economy beyond uh, what has, I think, the necessary political buy-in. And, and they view the Constitution uh, structurally there as a restraint. And I think the dissenters are looking at it from the other end of the telescope and are saying, actually, the Constitution was created to empower the federal government to respond to things in a way that the Articles of Confederation didn't. And that you know, being able to act as a single nation when there are nationwide uh, problems or threats is the point of the federal constitution. And now you're hamstringing uh, the, uh, the, the, the agencies and you're interfering with the structure that uh, the, the framers had. So I think you have uh, really different views animating the, the statutory interpretation that's gone on in these regulatory cases. Anything to add? I feel like this was kind of a put up or shut up moment for two really old cases. Um, one of, but they're both very famous in administrative law. One is the Brown and Williamson versus FDA case about whether FDA had the power to ban tobacco products, ban cigarettes um, as a sort of drug that wasn't safe or effective. And the other one is Whitman, the famous Congress doesn't hide elephants in mouse holes case. And both of those cases have sort of obviously been knocking around for a long time. They were oft cited in pretty much every administrative law case. Brown and Williamson for the proposition that Congress doesn't give agencies the power to do really big things that don't make a lot of sense. <laughs> That's, it's not a very textual opinion. Um, and Whitman and the elephants and mouse holes kind of took on a life of their own to a point where you'd see them in every case. And I think the court got to a point where it was sort of like, where's the there there? Like These are great catchphrases. Uh, but is there some sort of behind the curtain sort of doctrinal justification for them? And Justice Gorsuch in particular, but also Justice Kavanaugh, I think, had been really writing about the idea of major questions for a long time um, and thinking, you know, I think it is sort of grounded in the non-delegation doctrine and, and the concept of if you think Congress has given an agency the power to solve a problem that sort of affects the entire national economy, and especially if it's sort of not a great fit with the agency's mission, or if Congress has also repeatedly tried to legislate in that area and not done so, you know, what should you infer from that? So right now it's a clear statement rule, but whether this doctrine turns into sort of a greater revitalization of the non-delegation doctrine and is sort of more expressly constitutional, I think will be really interesting. I think it's safe to say that <laughs> in future administrative law cases, we will see a lot of major question arguments. Well, we are unfortunately pushing up against our deadline, and I want to spare some questions for the audience. So um, the last point I'd love to hear from each of you on is, Justice Breyer has retired. Uh, Justice Jackson is, uh, has been sworn in. What do you make of that? What do you what changes do you see coming down the pipeline for the two reporters at the end? Will that affect how you cover the court in any way? 
Well, uh, I guess I'd say this. Um, you know, first, uh, the justices have said in, in different venues that the arrival of a, of a new member kind of puts them all on their best behavior. So to the extent things are pretty tense up there right now, Justice Jackson's uh, arrival is, is timely. I remember, uh, for example, when, when uh, Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed, uh, arguments in the courtroom on his first day on the bench were, were very playful. And uh, the court that day was hearing uh, an Armed Career Criminal Act case. So the, the substance was not the cause of everyone's good mood. Um, you know, I, I can remember, for example, Justice Sotomayor asking a, a hypothetical that involved a, a pinch, and she actually, uh, you know, turned and, and pinched Justice Gorsuch, who made a playful face. And, and afterwards, uh, you know, Justice Kagan made a point of, of turning to to shake Justice Kavanaugh's hand and in full view of, of the court and and the press. Um, so it, it, it seems to me that uh, to the extent things are things are bad up there right now, that uh, you know maybe Justice Jackson's uh, arrival will kind of help everybody clear the slate for next term. Well, I yeah, I agree. Obviously, that it's a it's a small group, and uh, you know even after the very contentious uh, you know Kavanaugh hearings, uh, you know we uh, Justice Sotomayor uh, you know was you know uh, extremely complimentary towards him. I mean you know even if they you know might be anticipated to disagree on a lot of cases, they all have to work with each other, and and that I think is 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 paramount. They all have an interest in maintaining their their collegiality, if if only to make it you know less you know less unpleasant to go to the office. Uh, but uh, I think, you know, for us, one thing, you know, we, we're, you know, I think you're probably the same, Kevin, you know, waiting to, waiting to hear uh, Justice Jackson's voice as a justice of the Supreme Court. You know, we, you know, she had a, you know, a few opinions that were noted uh, as a lower court judge, but she's mainly been a district judge and hasn't had the chance to really expound uh, the way she thinks about these questions, and we haven't had a chance to really see her in oral argument and what she uh, brings to the table. Probably something different than Justice Breyer did. Uh, that would probably be true of like every other person on the planet. Um, so I, I think you know, in terms of a subject, uh, it, it is actually in some ways a sort of a relief to have something to write about that's not these you know heavy topics and and you know very weighty disputes that we've seen at the court. This year, so um, yeah, I think part of it will be what does she bring in terms of you know personality and outlook and and style. In terms of substance, uh, I don't think we're expecting um, to be surprised. I mean, I guess the definition of surprise is you don't expect it, but still, um, you know, she should fit in pretty comfortably uh, in the three justice liberal minority on that court. Uh, Maybe there will be some areas uh, I think we'll be looking forward to see where she might, you know, see things a little differently than the other two uh, Democratic appointed um, justices. Yeah, and I, and I think, um, you know, to, to what Jess said, she will have ample opportunity to, to make her voice heard if, if she so wishes uh, next term. Uh, she's recused from Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard, uh, you know, but the court granted review uh, to a companion case in which uh, UNC is the defendant, so she'll be able to participate there. Uh, you know, the, the question being whether or not the court will overturn its affirmative action precedence. Uh, there are other cases involving the constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act. There's a case involving a Christian website designer from Colorado who uh, refused to create uh, wedding websites for same-sex couples, uh, important voting rights cases that are on the court's docket for next term. So um, I, I, I you know, think it usually takes a few terms to get a sense of, of who a, a justice is exactly and for their profile to kind of fill out. But I, I think that uh, that process could be accelerated in Justice Jackson's case, given what's on the docket. Joelle? I think that one of the more notable shifts here is in administrative law in that I think for the reasons we just discussed, administrative law is likely to be a major frontier that the, the court will be 
confronting in the in the years to come, non-delegation doctrine, removal of executive officers, uh, all sorts of doctrines that, that are going to be coming up in the next few years, I anticipate. Justice Breyer was one of the staunchest defenders of the administrative state on the court, an admin scholar before he became a judge, and somebody who had a deep knowledge of administrative law and strong views about administrative law. Uh, and without him on the court for those cases, you still have Justice Kagan, who also is a staunch defender of the administrative state and a very articulate defender of the administrative state. But uh, I do think that 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 might change the way that the that the perhaps the dissents in those cases might end up uh, approaching uh, the argument. Uh, Justice Breyer would have been an an, an important. Uh, voice for the pro-administrative state position when those cases come up. And we don't know yet whether Justice Jackson will have the same views on those issues and will articulate them in a, in a similar way. Probably not in a similar way, at least, as Justice Breyer would have. Sarah? I think on most cases, the judgment line will stay the same. I think the main exception I would say is actually Justice Breyer in lower profile criminal cases would sometimes side with the conservatives. So in Fourth Amendment cases, like I perhaps the little-known Utah versus Streif, uh, that's what I'm thinking of. But by and large, I think in the hot-button cases, judgment line stays the same. The biggest difference is actually behind the scenes. Uh, Justice Breyer is like one of the most collegial people I think anyone who has ever interacted with him has ever met. He uh, is just sort of personally engaging and I think a real bridge builder. And so I think especially last term, you would see him getting assigned really big opinions like Google versus Oracle or BL, the school cheerleader case. And so, you know, those cases were not like ideologically divided or anything, but they were big cases in which he was very successful in keeping a strong majority together. Um, and I think it takes time to become that person. And so I think only time will tell, you know, will one of the members of the liberal wing sort of take over that role or will it sort of be increasingly polarized? Well, with that, in a few remaining moments, I want to turn it over to audience questions. My one admonition is that you are asking a question, not making a statement. So please keep it short and keep it with a question. There's one in the back there, and then we'll turn to you, Mary. To be brief, you've covered so much, but I didn't hear a commonality in there about where presumed innocent would be the dividing line between okay and not okay, whether it's presuming the right to carry the main case, religious practice should be presumed to be innocent first. Um, so I want to leave it at that because there's just too much else to talk about. But um, where is the presumption of innocence, the language for that, going back to how that could be where we have to draw the line? So I think that uh, if there is a, a sort of presumption running through these cases, it's a presumption in favor of uh, textually grounded rights and against government regulation of textually grounded rights. Uh, and so to the extent, so the Second Amendment is actually in the Constitution uh, and the right to abortion is not. And the free exercise clause is in the Constitution and the idea of a wall of separation is not. Right. So there are uh, actual commonalities there where the shift is toward text and history that's the presumption, and to the extent that there is a government regulation of that, uh, the burden is on the government to uh, try to uh, prove why it should be allowed to invade those textually grounded rights. Next question was uh, there in the middle.
Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, my question was, do you think that the Dobbs leak represents a loss of respect um, for the Supreme Court as an institution, even from those people who work within the court itself? I'll say this. I, I think that there is uh, a new cohort uh, of young progressive lawyers who increasingly see uh, large law firms uh, and the courts themselves as, as fonts of injustice uh, and the people who work within them uh, as being very directly complicit um, in, in these supposed injustices. And I think that um, how those institutions are going to handle, uh, you know, such people being seated among them is, is a, a real, real problem. Anyone else? All right. And uh, any other questions? There's a hand here in the back. I think there's a question over here on the on the left as well. Okay. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering on uh, evidence from the founding being more dispositive than not when you were talking about the statute of Northampton. I was just wondering the the opinion in Bruin also takes a good deal of time to actually debunk what the argument was for the other side on the statute. So do you think that older historical work is not going to be important at all? Or what role will that play in, in deriving original public meaning going forward since the opinion did take the time to say that this is not actually what it meant? I'll, I'll hang back on the methodological points. I, I will say, um, you know, in terms of, of what the court said, that you know the statute of Northampton, for example, was enacted during a period of uh, you know great turmoil within the realm. Uh, Edward II being deposed in favor of Edward III, um, and there's a, apparently, or at least in the, the view of the majority, um, you know, kind of a, a consistent thread there um, with uh, particularly restrictions on, on carriage uh, enacted in England that these things tended to crop up during periods of, of instability. And of course, the uh, response to that from from Justice Breyer is, you know, the response Respondents have, have marshaled this like you know huge record of, of history, and um, you know, law office historians have have found you know something wrong with with every single one of them. So uh, it was kind of. Uh uh, a familiar but but good uh, you know jab at, at originalism of, of kind of uh, you know cherry picking evidence to, to reach the the result that that you prefer and um, you know speaking of the dissent you know Justice Breyer also opens by giving this very lengthy recitation of of you know recent tragic uh, you know mass shootings that have happened so um, you know combining his critique of of the uh, law office history um, you know with his continued interest in in squaring um, you know the court's deliberations with sensible real world outcomes I thought it was just a very kind of Briarian dissent. Anyone else want to weigh in on that one? Okay, there was a question here in the back. Oh, hi, thank you. So obviously the point of an effective rule of law is to allow people to coordinate complex actions and plan for the future. How do you think the failure of the court to overturn Roe on substantive due process grounds is going to undermine this by leaving so much of statutory interpretation still on whether judges can kind of find an unarticulated right deeply embedded in American history on this ad hoc basis? So I, to the to the extent that you're, so as I understood the point, the point is that uh, uh, overturning Dobbs overturns Roe and Casey, but does not touch 
substantive due process as as a doctrine doesn't overrule that as Justice Thomas would prefer that it, it had uh, or not had in that case but would in the future um, and uh, that therefore there's this inconsistency in the doctrine because the under the reasoning of Dobbs perhaps these other substantive due process cases should be overruled and not doing so leads to this kind of incoherence in the law I think that is in some ways, the, the argument of the dis joint dissent in Dobbs, right, is to say, look, there's this incoherence now in our in this whole area of law because of what Dobbs did. Uh, I think that the uh, response that the majority makes is to say, well, uh, the whole idea of stare decisis is that areas of law don't have to be completely internally uh, consistent because it could very well be that even though methodologically uh, Dobbs would call into question some of these right to privacy cases for reasons of stare decisis, they shouldn't be overruled. And if that's true, then you would then the law can just tolerate that kind of potential methodological uh, incoherence for reasons grounded in why stare decisis is a legitimate uh, doctrine. The only thing I, I, I would throw in is that uh, Justice Thomas's uh, critique of substantive due process is, is one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is his uh, interest in reviving the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment. And that, <clears throat> that clause, of course, was you know, famously uh, essentially discarded by the Supreme Court in the late 19th century. Uh, and you know, some, some, uh, some of what I've read suggests that the Supreme Court, in giving such meaning to what probably they would view as more of the Liberty Clause you know, than just the Due Process Clause, was a way to uh, you know revive the concepts behind the privileges and immunities clause without uh, directly overruling prior courts. So I think that to the extent that Justice Thomas is successful in getting the majority to review uh, those uh, those cases, then if we're not going to have what's called substantive due process, uh, then. Is, does anything replace it? And I think that uh, the privileges and immunities clause, actually, I hope there'll be a scholar who writes about the difference between privileges and immunities and privileges or immunities because it's, it's uh, styled somewhat differently in the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment. So there may be some big textual uh, 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 conference on and or, which I'm, I'm looking forward to. But, uh, but, but basically, I think that's the other thing we have to look at. And he did even say in the concurrence in Dobbs that there may be other grounds for, you know, for supporting these rights, uh, and that might be the kind of thing he was talking about. Sarah, did you want to weigh in? I do. I think it's going to be an interesting period because I think without relying on sort of what has been sort of quote unquote traditional substantive due process, which is a little bit of an oxymoron, but sort of the, the, the sort of Griswold conception of substantive due process, I think the majority I take to be saying like give Chief Justice Rehnquist a chance, like let Washington versus Glucksburg and the history and tradition test have a bit of a run in the lower courts and see how they apply it. And meanwhile, I think Justice Thomas will continue on his project of saying, what is a privilege or immunity, um, and is that another source? I mean, I think the court is just saying, bring us something else, <laughs> and we will evaluate it. Um, but I think in Dobbs, they are very very clearly trying to draw a line as to why abortion is so different, both on sort of a substantive ground and also on stare decisis grounds that Joel has talked about. With that, we are out of time. Please join me in thanking our panelists. <laughs>